Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who intently who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is, he is a religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, hey, Christ Community is down, down campus. It is really, really good to be here. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike, and I used to serve here as the pastoral resident at Christ Community's downtown campus, and then everybody met Tyler and started to forget my name, and so I moved on, and uh, that's been great. That's just to make him uncomfortable. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, so about a year ago, we wrapped up, uh, I wrapped up my pastoral residency here at Christ Community, and uh, the Lord called us to a phenomenal free church in Gainesville, Florida, where it is currently even hotter and more humid than it is here. And uh, we are serving there and absolutely loving uh, what the Lord has for us to do there. Uh, a lot of you, uh, some of you remember when my son Eli was born. He was born while uh, my wife Courtney and I were here. He's two and a half years old now and has a zest for life. He says the funniest stuff. I love hanging out with Eli. And his little brother, Theodore, is due in three weeks. Um, for that reason, I got my phone right over there. And if I get a call, there's pretty much nothing I can do, but at least I'll know uh, that there is movement on that front. For those of you who don't know me, i just uh, tell you a little bit about myself, and then we'll get into the sermon. Um, I, am, I am learning to appreciate the significance of things when they happen. I'm trying to get better and better at appreciating in the present moment when something is important and significant. I wasn't always good at this. Uh, give you an example of that. When I was in seventh grade, uh, one day we got to do what was my, easily my favorite class uh, my entire year in seventh grade was in science class, we dissected a frog. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it was two people to a frog, and you get together, and you got to open up the frog. You got to take out all the interior organs and, you know, identify them and all that stuff. Really enjoyed that day. Uh, my, one of my turns at the frog, my job was to take out the small intestine. Um, and I thought I had removed its various attachments to different organs. I could explain it all, but it's kind of scientific. Um, so I've got it in the grip of my tweezers, and I'm trying to, to pull it out, but it's not coming out. And so I, I pull harder, and I pull a little bit harder, pull a little bit harder still, and, and on my last and final and hardest pull, the uh, small intestine slips out of the grip of my tweezers and very rapidly returns to the frog from whence it came. And when it lands in there, it makes, shall we say, a splash in the pool of preservative chemicals that exist in the frog's body. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, 
Well, that's mildly disgusting, but the good news is that your protective eyewear definitely stopped the frog's preservatives from getting into your eyes and hurting you. And you are right that protective eyewear would actually stop frog preservatives from getting in my eyes. And you're also very sweet to assume that at seven, in seventh grade, I was smart and humble enough to wear protective eyeglasses. And what happened next was an absolute whirlwind. My teacher grabs me, rushes me to the nurse's office, who shoves my head into a drinking fountain and begins rinsing my eyes out. All the while, someone in the office is calling my grandma, because of course, of course my parents are out of town. She drops everything, comes, takes me from the school, brings me to my eye doctor, who leaves his appointment and begins flushing my eyes out with medicated eye drops. And as all of this is going on, I remember thinking, this is an overreaction. And the reason I thought that was because in seventh grade, I had no idea the danger my eyes were in. I had no idea that this chemical concoction that was so effective at preserving the dead tissue inside the frog actually had the opposite effect on the live tissue of my eyes. And that if my teacher, my nurse, and my eye doctor had not moved swiftly and decisively the long-term effects of what had gotten into my eyes could have been pretty substantial. So as we continue on in our series this morning, Vices and Virtues, we're going to take a look at a vice that is just as often underestimated, that requires just as swift and decisive action, and when unaddressed, long-term is just as dangerous as frog preservatives in a seventh grader's eyes. So the, the passage we're looking at this morning, very clearly, as you have heard, lays out our vice for this morning that we're going to consider, and it is anger. If there's one thing I want you to take away this morning, one thing that you can chew on this week and think about uh, as we walk away, it's this. Anger is poison. Anger is poison. And as we approach our text this morning, we're going to see exactly why anger is so poisonous. And we're all also going to see, if you'll let me stretch the metaphor, uh, two antidotes that will inoculate us to the poisonous effects of anger. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you get it, go ahead and turn, if you haven't yet, to James chapter 1. It's on page 1011 on your community Bible, James chapter 1. This series, Vices and Virtues, it starts with a simple command which comes from the Apostle Peter, that Peter you heard about in all the stories with Jesus. And he says this, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Why? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the goal before us. We want to put off the vices that so naturally occur in our heart and replace them with these virtues that are prescribed for us so that not for our own good, but so that we can be effective and fruitful ministers of the gospel. So with that goal in mind, let's dive in to James chapter 1. We'll start in verse 19. James says this. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, when we use anger in everyday conversation, the word anger, there's one of two meanings that we, we could have in mind. Uh, one of them is the emotion of anger. 
uh, something happens and you feel your, your body temperature and your blood pressure go up real fast and then uh, hopefully goes away just as quickly as it came. I experienced the emotion of anger yesterday. I'm sitting on the plane that is bringing me here reviewing my sermon and it was one of those things where it's like, you know, we, we just got to redo this thing and we'll be gone in 10 minutes. Oh, you know, now we have to switch this out. It'll be just another 10 minutes. And before you know it, an hour has gone by. I'm sitting on this plane thinking, don't these idiots know I need to get to Kansas City and preach a sermon on anger? They're holding me back from doing the work God has for me. So that's one example. The other example, and what James has in mind here, is more of a person who lives in a state of anger. Like a person who's defined by anger. Every person feels anger at one point or another, but there are certain people that we would call an angry person. So like if the one example is, here's the temperature in Kansas City right now, the other is, this is the general climate of this region. And this is what James is talking about, this person who lives in a state of anger that is so poisonous to us. And I mean that actually very literally. Way back in the 90s, there was a, a study produced on this. There was a group of researchers who wanted to look into uh, the correlation between anger, living in a state of anger, and someone's physical health. And what they, what they discovered was, as we can probably all guess, that there's actually a very great risk in terms of our physical health to living in a state of physical anger. So they published their work, and they titled it Anger Kills. And listen to the summary of their findings. This is what they write. They say, getting angry is like taking a small dose of some slow-acting poison, arsenic, for example, every day of your life. And the result is often the same, not tomorrow, perhaps, or even the day after, but sooner than most of us would wish, your hostility is more likely to harm your health than will be the case for your friend whose personality is not tinged by tendencies to cynicism, anger, and aggression. Anger, living in a state of anger, it is poisonous, to our physical health. And the effects on our physical health mirror the effects that it has on our relational health. If you're a person who lives in a state of anger, you will find that it is very difficult to have meaningful relationships with other people because they do not feel safe to be vulnerable with you. The slightest little thing can bring a torrent of anger out of you. But more importantly than either of those, anger is poisonous to our spiritual health. Anger will kill our ability to relate to God, to hear from God, and most importantly, to respond to him. In fact, that's the next place James goes. Look with me at verse 20. Let every person be slow to anger. Verse 24, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, this verse ought to give us a little bit of pause because what is anger? I mean, I don't know if any of you have seen Inside Out, the movie. It's my son's favorite movie, so I've seen it a bajillion times in the last week. Um, but in that movie, we learned that the purpose of anger is to make sure that things in this world are right and fair and just. And shouldn't we want a world that is right and fair and just? And the answer to that question is yes, we should. We were all created with a desire to see the world be rightly ordered and to flourish within the order that God created it. And we also believe that every single human being uh, on this earth who has ever lived was created in the image of God, which means they have infinite and equal worth to one another. And anytime we see someone devalued or dehumanized or we see God's creation attacked, we ought to be angry at that. The problem is that there was a time a long time ago when humanity collectively decided to turn their back on God. 
decided that their ways were better than God's ways, that they were more fit to be the rulers and kings of their lives than God was. And when that happened, the very good desires in our hearts, including the desire to see justice, was broken, marred, warped, and turned in on itself. So whereas before in our design we desire to see God's justice and we get angry when that is thwarted or broken down, now we desire to see our own justice. Now we desire to see the world be right by me. We desire to see my life be easy and in my control and comfortable. And it's when that is threatened that I become most angry. And here's why anger is so poisonous. Because if we are about building a kingdom, a sphere of influence in our lives where our own desires for justice and righteousness are established, that means we are doing so in competition with God. Because Jesus has come to establish a kingdom. And God has created an order for justice that is good and righteous and holy. And if we choose that our desires for justice in our own lives, for things to be fair and right and easy and comfortable for our own lives, if we work towards that end, we are working in competition with God. That's why James says the anger of man cannot produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man actually, when not controlled, when played out, when used in ways that are unholy and unrighteous, puts that person directly opposed to the work of God in this world. But anger is sly because it is built on this idea in pursuit of justice. It is self-justifying so that when you get angry, and you, you, maybe you've experienced this, or maybe it's just me, but when you get angry, you begin to realize, I, no, I'm right to be angry about this. This was wrong. And anger feeds on itself. So that the more angry you get, the more justified you feel in your anger, the more angry you get, the more justified you feel in your anger, the more angry you get, and the more hard you work to build your own kingdom and version of justice and righteousness in this world. With the best intentions, maybe. That's why anger is so poisonous. So, what do we do about it? What is the antidote to the poison of living a life defined by anger? Well, the good news is James is a generous man, so he gives us two. Two antidotes that, when taken regularly, will inoculate us to the poisonous effects of anger in our lives. So let's look back into our text for the first. Verse 21. James says, therefore, in other words, because the anger of man cannot produce the righteousness of God, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Antidote number one to a life defined by anger is to receive the word. To receive the word. And James so beautifully illustrates what this command means by adding in one little adjective in there that, that, that defines everything for us. It's this adjective, implanted. Receive the implanted word. You see it there in the text? Implanted. It's a very agrarian word, as you can guess. It, it carries the idea of a seed that's planted in soil, and it carries the connotation of something that is allowed to have roots and to have a supply of life and to grow. The expectation is that this thing that is implanted will be permanently placed and it will grow. And what James is saying is, instead of allowing that self-justifying anger to have a permanent place in your heart, you've got to move that out 
and instead receive the word of God and allow that to be implanted in your hearts. This word planted and this idea of the word being a seed can make us think of, of several passages. One of them, in Psalm chapter 1, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In other words, God's word. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and his leaf does not wither. This is a man who is so delighted, or woman, and so del- is so delighted in receiving the word of God and allowing it to be implanted in his or her heart that they consistently yield the fruit of one who loves God. Compare that then with, uh, with this one. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The writer says this, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges, same root as pl- implanted, Anger lodges in the heart of, what's that last word? Say it one more time louder. Fools. Fools are the ones who allow anger to be implanted in their hearts. So antidote number one, allow, receive the word of God. Allow it to become implanted in your heart. And when you do, you know what you'll find? Nine times in the Old Testament, you'll encounter passages that describe God as one who is slow to anger. Exactly the way James has commanded us to be in this passage. See, God is not defined by his anger. He does get angry, but the defining characteristic of God is that he is abounding, these passages will say, in steadfast love and commitment to his people and in mercy. This is how God is defined. Which, of course, is not to say that he doesn't get angry. Remember, we're not talking about the emotion of anger. We're talking about living in a state of anger. There are times when the emotion of anger is a very appropriate response because, after all, uh, there are very good uses to which we can put poison. Let me give you an example. I told you earlier that my wife, uh, Courtney, and my son, Eli, and I, we live in north central Florida, and we love living there, and we love the work we're doing there, but there was one thing that we were both totally unprepared for. I think this was intentional on their part. Um, The bugs. The bugs in north central Florida are armed offensively and defensively. They are enormous, and they never go away. And the king of these bugs is the Florida cockroach. Let's show that picture real quick. Um, this is, uh, you can see it, this is, uh, m- this is in America. This is my mantle in my house. Uh, I get a call from Courtney one day. Her voice is about eight octaves higher than it normally is. And I come home, and I meet that. And when I meet that, I'm very happy that we have poison. I'm very happy that there is a bottle of uh, chemical that I can spray on that thing and it'll die like that. Of course, there's better uses we can put poison. One instance is that uh, doctors and scientists have figured out how to use poison to target cancer. There's very good uses to which we can put poison, but the thing about poison is it's very effective at its job at killing, but it does not care who or what it kills. And for that reason, it's really best left to the professionals. We have exterminators who come and kill our bugs. We have doctors who administer chemotherapy. And God, who is the only truly righteous and just being in the universe, is really the only one we ought to trust with anger. Look, when God's glory is robbed of him, when his creation is threatened and abused, when his image is marred by sin, he gets angry, and that ought to make us angry too, But when we get angry at the things that make God angry, we need to to exercise our anger in the same way God does. 
if you continue reading these passages that describe God as slow to anger, he will also promise in those passages that he will not remain angry. That the threats to his creation and to his image will bring anger out of him, but he will not remain angry because angry is not what defines him. What defines him is his commitment to his people and his mercy that he shows to them. And that's what we will discover if we receive God's word and allow it to be implanted in our hearts. That's antidote number one. Number two, back to our text. This is in verse 22. James says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Antidote number two, you need to practice the word. You need to practice the word. That is, you need to not just receive the word in the sense that you listen to it and hear it and maybe even understand it. You need to actually do the things you find in the word. And here's how James illustrates it. Couldn't do it better, so we'll just stick with what's in the text. Verse 23. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. I love this metaphor, and you may have heard this before, but describing the word of God as a mirror. Because if we look intently at it, not just gaze at it as we're passing on our way out the door, but really look intently at it, we're going to discover a reflection in this mirror that gives us a truer sense of ourselves than any physical mirror in this world ever could, which is that we are not what we're supposed to be. And we don't do the things we're supposed to do. And that there is one who is who we are supposed to be and who has done and is doing all the things we're supposed to do. And that if we put our faith in him and rely on him totally, we can actually be transformed, starting with our hearts in which that anger resides. Now imagine with me, you study that intently. I mean, this is a groundbreaking, life-altering truth. And you walk away from that mirror and go, living, go about your life living as if nothing has changed. As if you have no need for a savior. As if you're everything that you ought to be. That's utterly foolish, James says. Like, let me just be straight with you. If you come to church every single Sunday morning, if you fill copious notebooks with notes, if you do Bible studies, maybe you even like have your Bible open in your cup of coffee and you Instagram it real quick and get tons of likes on Instagram. I don't know how Instagram works. But if you do all of that and nothing about your life changes, you are fooling yourself if you think it's giving you any value or any value to the people around you. Certainly not going to help you ward off anger or sloth or vainglory, or greed, or gluttony. We have got to actually put the word into practice. And that's what James says next, verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law, of, the law that frees us from these vices, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It is the one who perseveres, not in their anger, but in receiving and practicing the word of God who will produce any fruit that is of value and can actually be a part of bringing the righteousness of God to bear in this world, which is incredible when you think about it. Just so that we're all on the same page, where James ends this passage is, let me, let me just give a quick picture of what it looks like then to put the word of God into practice. 
Because during his time, and, and during the time of his half-brother Jesus, there was a group of people who very famously worked very hard to practice God's word, and yet the result of their practices were the exact opposite of what God desires. These people are called the Pharisees. So let's just clear up what it means to actually practice God's word. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Have you ever played the Google game before? I don't know if you know about this. Uh, if you use Google a lot, you know if you start typing in a, a phrase, it'll suggest what the most common searches are that begin with that phrase. You know what I'm talking about? So like you could type in, for instance, I've done this, um, I'm having trouble accepting. Do you know the second most common search is that, that begins with I'm having trouble accepting? This is a real thing. I'm having trouble accepting that Edward, Cull Edward Cullen is a fictional character. That's a real thing. People are, a lot of people are concerned about that. Okay, so that's the world we live in. What about, what about if we start with why are Christians? You know what the single most common search is that begins with why are Christians? Why are Christians so mean? That's a real thing. A lot of people are concerned about that. As James plays out what it really means for us to receive and practice God's word, he uses a, a really subtle play on words. Because this word religion is synonymous with words like pious, uh, devout, proper. And this, these are words that the Pharisees would have gladly used to describe themselves. And yet as they prop themselves up in all their propriety and all their devoutness before the Lord, they were doing actually nothing of value to anyone. This religion of trying to uh, earn God's acceptance by following every little letter and, and dot in the law and then adding some of their own just to be sure was of no value to them or any of the people around them. Their hearts were still full of these vices, even though they were religious. James says the alternative, what it will look like when we are actually practicing God's word is that we will be drawing near specifically to people who are vulnerable and in their most vulnerable state. In other words, in a place where they are incapable of paying you back for what you've done. In a place where they are incapable of participating in the building of your own kingdom. And thus will allow us to remain unstained from the vices of this world. Listen, Christ community, anger is absolutely poisonous. It'll kill you physically. It'll kill you relationally. And most importantly, it'll kill you spiritually if you allow it to dwell permanently in your heart. And so we need to be about receiving and practicing the word of God, specifically passages like this. Here's a list of a few from the book of Proverbs. Uh, 14.29, the writer says this, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Look into that mirror. 
When things get contentious around you, you do, maybe it's a political conversation, I'm guessing, do you dive in with, with a, a quick temper or are you slow and quiet to listen and understand? Another one, 1518, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Look into that mirror. Are we people who stir up arguments and debates and contention or are we people who bring peace? 1632, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Imagine the valor it would take to defeat Kansas City and become the king or queen of it. Better, says the author of this verse, would it be for you to control your spirit and to put off anger. 1911, last one, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Look into that mirror. Do we actually find joy in overlooking the offenses that would normally bring anger out of us? These are things we can actually do. These are things that will actually help bring the righteousness of God to bear in this church and in this city if we will give ourselves to them. Let me close this way. There is probably no more vulnerable state to be in in this world than a sinner before a holy and righteous God. And after God creates everything, after he miraculously saves his people time and again, he watches as they wander from him, as they abuse his creation, as they are unfaithful to their covenant with him, as they begin to worship other gods as they begin to sacrifice at the altar of the Baals and the Ashtaroth and of sex and money and power and prestige as they begin to give themselves over to the worship of things other than gods God finally reaches his Popeye moment and he says that's it that's all I can stand I can't stand no more and in the great outpouring of his wrath and anger against sin God becomes one of us And he drinks the cup of his poisonous anger towards sin to the full. He becomes the object of his own wrath. And on the cross, he kills our sin. Do you see that the anger of God fuels his mercy? That it doesn't perpetuate his anger, but it actually, the more he gets angry, the more extremes he goes to to save his people. I told you it's better left to the pros. Every week here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus, we gather together at the Lord's table because the night before Jesus went to the cross and displayed this one great act of God's wrath poured out against sin, he left a meal for his disciples. And among many things, the purpose of that meal is that we would never, ever, ever, ever forget just how evil our sin is and just how far God has gone to save us from it. So in a minute, I'm going to pray and invite us to come together at the Lord's table. Uh, If you're new here at Christ Community's downtown campus, anybody who is a follower of Jesus is welcome at this table. If that doesn't describe you, I invite you to take this time to pray and ask God that would ask that God would further reveal himself to you. 
But if that does describe you, uh, when you're invited, I invite you to stand, um, go to the back through these two aisles, and then circle around to one of our two communion serving stations up here in the front. We gather in groups of about four to six, uh, take a piece of bread and hang on to it, and then dip it in the cup and hang on to that, and wait until you can all take together as a group in remembrance of what Jesus has done. This is not meant to be a rushed time. This is meant to be a time of reflection and remembrance on what God has done for us. But when you do gather, do so with this in mind. Paul says this, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You proclaim the Lord taking his anger towards our sin on himself until he comes.